Chapter 33 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Beginning of the End. It becomes necessary now for us to turn and follow some of the movements of the traitor Benedict Arnold, to whose ravages in Virginia reference has already been made. Before Arnold and his legion had set sail from New York, he had been making his quarters in that city in Lower Broadway, next to the house occupied by Sir Henry Clinton. Well aware that the British had no respect for him after his desertion, for no matter how much they might hate their enemies, they nevertheless had a strong feeling of honest admiration for many of the rebel leaders, a feeling they could not have for one who had been a traitor, though his treachery had caused him to join their own ranks. Arnold knew how he was also despised by his former comrades. And his feeling was well grounded, for even Washington himself, as well as many others, was trying to think of some plan by which the traitor might be secured and a punishment visited upon him that would serve as a terrible warning to others who, it was commonly reported, were also preparing to follow the desertion of Arnold. While the army was at Tappan, 1780, a plan among the many presented and tried for securing possession of the traitor was suggested to and approved by Washington himself. The general sent for Major Lee, in whom he had unbounded confidence, and after talking over the matter, it was decided that Lee should select some trusty man from his own legion, who, to all appearances, should desert and join the Redcoats in New York. With letters to two friends of Washington, he was to keep in communication with the Americans and to form some plan by which Arnold was to be secured and sent to his former friends, but under no considerations was Arnold himself to be killed. Lee selected Sergeant Major Champy for the difficult and delicate task, and that young officer, in spite of his patriotism, at first naturally rebelled against the apparent desertion, but at last he yielded to the united persuasions of his leader and of Washington, and at eleven o'clock, on the night of October 20th, 1780, with three guineas in his pocket, the gift of Lee, and a few personal belongings, secretly started on horseback from the camp. He had been gone but a few minutes before his desertion was discovered, and in spite of Lee's efforts to delay his angry soldiers, the pursuit was so sharply followed that Champy just barely contrived to escape, and was received on board of one of the British galleys. The captain, after listening to his story, gave him a letter to Sir Henry Clinton, by whom he was cordially welcomed, and soon after was assigned to the American Legion Arnold was then raising among Tories and deserters, the very thing Champy desired most of all. He carefully laid and carried out his plans, and his arrangements were completed for secretly seizing Arnold and bearing him to Hoboken, where Lee and a small party were to be in readiness to receive them. Lee's party was ready at the appointed place and time, but though they waited long, neither Champy nor Arnold appeared. The cause of the failure, not understood until long afterward, was due to a sudden change Arnold made in his quarters so that he might better look after his troops, which even then were embarking for the expedition which the traitor was to lead in Virginia. 
So it came to pass that not only was Arnold not captured, but Champy himself had to sail with him and be one of the army which was to lay waste to his own land. When Champy at last succeeded in escaping, as he did before many weeks had passed, his return to his friends, when they understood what he had been trying to do, was hailed with delight, and the young soldier was covered with honors. But as it was well known that if he should be made a prisoner by the British, he would be hanged without mercy, he was discharged from the service, though not before his great commander had richly rewarded him for his daring. Arnold, meanwhile, had landed in Virginia with 1,600 men, and soon marched upon Richmond, where he destroyed much salt, tobacco, and other valuable stores. From Richmond he went to Portsmouth, and making that town his headquarters, began to send forth small detachments in every direction, which destroyed so much public and private property, and committed so many outrages, that Washington ordered Lafayette, with the 1,200 men, with whom the Marquis was marching to join the Southern Army, to stop in Virginia and try to check Arnold's evil deeds. There was renewed hope now that the traitor might be secured, and Washington wrote Rochambeau and Detouche at Newport, urging them to send the entire French fleet and 1,000 men to help Lafayette. But Detouche sent only one ship and two frigates, and when they arrived off the Virginia shore, they found Arnold so strong that they straightway sailed back to Newport, though they did manage to capture a 50-gun ship, the Romulus, on their way. Washington, however, was not ready to give up his hope of taking Arnold, and on March 6th, he, with other officers, held a conference with Rochambeau and others at Newport, the result of which was that it was decided to have the entire French fleet convey 1,100 of Rochambeau's men to Virginia. But the French admiral delayed, and when at last he arrived off Cape Henry, March 16th, he found the British Admiral Arbuthnot there, ready to give him battle. For an hour the French fought and then withdrew, and on the following day started back for Newport. A few days afterward, General Phillips, with 2,000 redcoats, came from New York and joined Arnold, and both marched to Petersburg, after causing untold suffering in the region, where Baron Steuben, with his little force, could not resist them. On May 20th, Cornwallis arrived at Petersburg, and, as General Phillips had died of a fever, he took command of the entire body of troops, which had also been increasing by the coming of 1,500 more men from New York. Lafayette was to oppose this great force, but the little body of troops was composed mostly of New Englanders, who did not like the warm weather nor the country in which they now found themselves, and began to desert in such numbers that the poor young commander, Cornwallis always spoke of him as the boy, was almost in despair. Finally, he made an appeal to their patriotism by telling them of the full danger of what he was trying to do, and at the same time urging them to stay and fight with him. He also raised some money on his own credit in Baltimore and purchased some clothing, of which the soldiers were in dire need, with the result that only a few more men deserted from the ranks. Cornwallis soon afterward crossed the Pamunkey River, and dividing his forces, sent the hated Tarleton with one division to capture the assembly, which at the time was in session in Charlottesville. Tarleton, whatever his failings may have been, was a man of energy, and he almost succeeded in the project, for he captured seven of the members of the assembly 
and destroyed all the stores the Americans had been collecting at that town. The other force of Redcoats also did great damage, but did not succeed in getting possession of the stores at Point of Fork, for the Patriots, rallying, succeeded in saving a part of them. Word had now come to Lafayette that Mad Anthony Wayne, with 800 men of the Pennsylvania line, was on his way to join him, and if ever a man rejoiced, it was the Marquis when he heard of the coming of this ally. The boy had moved his stores from Richmond to Albemarle Old Courthouse, and as the Redcoats were of course not ignorant of what the Americans were doing, Cornwallis moved up and took a position between Lafayette and his stores. The boy followed after the Redcoats, and was close to them when the place where the stores were kept was only a few miles distant. Cornwallis was now greatly elated, for he held one of the two roads leading to the place, and did not believe Lafayette would dare to take the other, as it would lead him into trouble. But while the British general was chuckling over his cleverness, suddenly the boy made his way by night through a road the British had considered impassable, and so the Redcoats, giving up all thought of trying to get the stores, marched back to Richmond. Meanwhile, Baron Steuben's men and some of the Patriot farmers of the region had joined Lafayette, and soon the little American army numbered 4,000. Cornwallis, thinking the number of his enemies to be greater than it really was, was not ready for a fight, and he was still further bothered by a demand which had come from Clinton in New York for him to send a part of his troops back to that city. For he, Clinton, had just discovered that the Americans were planning a combined attack upon that town. Clinton had learned this, as he had many other things, by letters written by Washington and sent by messengers whom the American commander took pains to have fall into the hands of the Redcoats. In this manner, he kept Clinton in a constant state of alarm, not daring to move from the city for fear that the moment he departed, the old fox would be ready to steal a march upon him or attack the town when it was defenseless. At this time, however, there is no doubt that Washington was seriously thinking of making a movement of some kind against the Redcoats in New York. On the 4th of July, Cornwallis with his troops marched from Williamsburg to a ford in the James River, they used to call it James's River, and a part of his force was led across to the opposite shore. In the three days that followed, the most of the baggage and supplies were carried across, and Lafayette, who now was only nine miles away, naturally supposing that the bulk of the British army was on the opposite shore, and only a small rear guard had been left behind, at once made preparations to attack it. This was the very thing that Cornwallis had believed the young Frenchman would do, and he had in reality left and arranged the main body of his troops to receive this very attack, and the little American army very nearly fell into the cleverly contrived trap. The British outposts fell back before the attack, which was led by Mad Anthony Wayne, just as they had been told to do, and the first thing Wayne knew he was facing the main body of the British, who, previously concealed by woods, were now advancing to meet him. Wayne did not believe he could retreat safely, and so, perhaps remembering what sheer boldness had won him at Stony Point, he now with his 800 men fiercely charged upon the approaching enemy. For a while the hottest kind of a fight took place, but Lafayette having arrived by this time, and having discovered the true state of affairs, succeeded in helping Mad Anthony and his men withdraw with the other troops behind a deep swamp. 
it would have fared badly with the bold Americans if Cornwallis had followed up the advantage he thus gained, but he was fearful that his enemy was trying to lead him into the same kind of trap he himself had been preparing for them, and so he took his entire army in the night across the river, and soon afterward marched to Portsmouth. There he had the troops which he had been ordered to send to Clinton in New York embark, but just before they were ready to set sail he received another message from Clinton, instructing him to hold all his men and to select some safe post where he could act with the fleet, which was soon to be sent to his aid. Clinton also explained that now he was afraid of neither Washington nor Rochambeau. At first Cornwallis thought of taking his army to Old Point Comfort, but finally decided upon Yorktown, on the York River, and accordingly marched to that place where, as soon as the army arrived, it began to fortify the camp. Cornwallis had received word that the British fleet in the West Indies was coming to his aid, and so all he planned to do was to keep off the little American army that was near, and wait for the coming of his allies. As soon as these should come, he would be in a condition to make Virginia suffer as South Carolina already had suffered, and confident of that outcome, the British general fondly believed that all he had to do was to exercise patience, and the entire South would soon be at his feet. It must have been a shock when the French Count de Grasse, with a fleet of 28 sail, suddenly appeared in the Chesapeake August 30th, and word was soon received that the combined armies of the Americans and French were advancing from the north. The rumor soon gave place to a definite report, and the report soon became a fact, from which the overconfident and startled Cornwallis could find no escape. End of chapter 33